Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, and he put him in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled, and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Amen. Amen. We are looking at the life of Joseph in the month of May and seeing how the Bible can make the claim that even despite appearances many times that God is working for our good in the world. And we've seen in the life of Joseph how he was sold into slavery by his own family, by his own brothers. And now here in chapter 39, he's, he's come to a foreign country. He's now a racial outsider. And for the next 13 years of his life, a number of things happen. But even more than that, I, I think that something besides the obvious is going on. So what's, what's going on in the story behind the scenes? 
Well, of all places in the Bible, actually Psalm 105 tells you what's going on. Psalm 105 was written many years later. It's looking back on the Joseph story, recounting the history of Israel, and says this. It gives us an insight. Verse 17 says, Joseph was sold as a slave until the time that his word came to pass. And here it is. The word of the Lord tested him. Tested him. Why? Well, because to redeem people and to save the world, God allows, even brings tests into our lives. All God's people said, yes, amen, yes, you're welcome for this. Uh, you know, when we first, when we first meet Joseph, he's, he's spoiled and arrogant. When he emerges from prison over a decade later, he's now ready to rule an empire. Well, what happened? How did he go from here to there? Well, this happened. Chapter 39 did. The trials, the tests of Genesis 39 happened. And so I want to suggest to you that the, that the three tests that Joseph faces and passes here. And by the way, there are, there are three tests here. And the, the passage is neatly divided into thirds for the preacher. Thank you very much. These are the same three tests we must also face and pass if we're to become the kind of people that God uses in the world. So to become a person who changes the world like Joseph, we must, you must face and pass first the test of your hands, the test of your heart, and finally the test of your hope. There they are. We're going to look at these tests in turn and see how, how actually at the end the Bible gives us a key to all these tests that can enable us to pass every test in life. So here we go. Let's look at number one, the test of your hands and start by asking, well, where's Joseph? Well, Joseph, of course, is now uh, he's living in the house of someone named Potiphar. That's his his master and Potiphar's name means devoted to the sons. He uh, Potiphar was the was the captain of the guard in Egypt. This means he was likely the, the, the head of Pharaoh's personal security force. Potiphar's a, a special forces guy. That's the point. Potiphar's powerful. Uh, he's likely a warrior himself. And Potiphar has many possessions and Potiphar has many slaves and Potiphar has discovered that one of Potiphar's new slaves named Joseph has got some skills, organizational skills, leadership skills that is. And so Potiphar begins to promote Joseph. Look at verse three. It says, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. What's that say? In his hand. Now, this word hand, this is crucial for understanding the chapter. This word appears more than any word, more frequently in this chapter than any other word, so you won't miss it. And there are things we're meant to see that are in Joseph's hand, and there's something else in someone else's hand that we'll come to and we'll see. Because the hand in the Bible isn't just a, eh, not just a convenient, helpful body part. No, in ancient cultures, the hand was a symbol of and metaphor for power. That's the point. So let's ask, well, what's in Joseph's hand? What are we supposed to see? Well, in a word, everything. What's Joseph got power over? Everything. Verse four, it says, so Joseph found favor in Potiphar's side, became his personal servant. He became the overseer and all that Potiphar owned, he put in the Hebrew, it literally says in Joseph's hand. So Joseph's been given enormous power, enormous influence. And what does he do then with what is in his hand? Well, Joseph uses it to serve those around him. And he uses it, you can't miss this, to prosper his owner, a pagan, idol-worshiping warlord in a foreign country. 
So Joseph uses power to bless and prosper those around him. But by contrast, there's somebody else here with something in her hand. Who is it? Well, it's Potiphar's wife. And what does she have in her hand? Verse 12 tells us. It says, she caught Joseph by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment, what? In her hand and fled and went outside. And by the way, we should pause and just sort of note here the inversion of power that we saw. If you were here last week, last week we saw Judah was this, was this person of, of power and privilege and how he used his power as a man to exclude and exploit a poor young immigrant woman. Well, now in this chapter, it's reversed. There's a rich and powerful woman using her power and position to exploit a poor immigrant man. But she says to Joseph, lie with me. But that's not it. That's actually way too nice for what this is saying. Uh, in, in Hebrew, this is a vulgar two-word command. And we've got a similar two-word command in English, but we won't go there. Uh, this is two words in Hebrew. This is something more like, literally, she says, sex now. Or sex me. That's the gist. So she sees something she wants, which in this case happens to be, you know, the handsome pool boy, basically. Because we're told that Joseph was, it says, handsome in form and appearance, which is purposefully the identical words used of Joseph's mother, Rachel. Back in chapter 29, she, it says, was lovely in form and appearance. Here, he is handsome in form and appearance. In other words, our man is yoked. He's yoked. He can't help but, you know, put on the gun show for her every day. It's hot in Egypt, right? So sun's up, gun's up. You know, he's got he's some Hebrew eye candy here, and it's more than she can take. So she uses her position and power to seek pleasure for herself at Joseph's expense. So Joseph uses what's in his hands for others. She uses what's in her hand for herself. And let me tell you, right now, in the same way, in some kind of way, you and I are facing this kind of test as well. Because every one of us has some kind of power, some means of influence. Uh, For example, let me just give you two quick Examples, if you're a student here, a middle school student, high school student, college student, and you've got some kind of a level of popularity or influence, are you using it to include those that are considered outcasts in your social structure? Right? I mean, people that no one wants to sit with at the lunch table or in the cafeteria, or maybe it's the same place at your work, or are you using your position to feel good about you? And if you are a somebody at your school, And you're not using that to bring others up in a way you're a kind of Potiphar's wife, right? You see that? Second example, I'll go a little deeper here. What about, what about those of us with jobs, uh, with income? Did you know your income is actually a source of power? It is because you get to direct your future, other people's future to a point. And so if you decide then to prosper yourself exclusively, and let me just paint a picture of that, it, just to have a, a nice house, right? Nice car, nice clothes, take nice trips, but you can't bring yourself to give financially the biblical minimum standard away, which is always at least 10%. In a way, you're a kind of Potiphar's wife. You use what's in your hand to power and position, give power to position yourself. So what then, by contrast, this is a happier question, what does a Joseph then look like? Let me give you an example from history. Some of you have likely heard of Dr. George Washington Carver, the African-American scientist and inventor. And like Joseph, Dr. Carver was sold as a slave 
but he gained his freedom and was the first black student at Iowa State University. And there he blossomed into this force of nature. He was so creative and inventive as a scientist. And he found so many uses for the peanut that Time magazine labeled him the black Leonardo da Vinci. That's how brilliant he was. And do you know what he would do every morning? Dr. Carver would get up. He would go out early, rising around 5 a.m., go out to his conservatory where his plants were, and he would pray this prayer. He would pray, God, give me the secret of the peanut. Secret of the peanut. That was his prayer. And God did. God answered that. He, Dr. Carver discovered more than 300 uses for the peanut alone, hundreds more for simple, inexpensive vegetables. And then he put into the hands, therefore, the, into the hands of poor southern farmers, the power to prosper their lives. He used his power to bring a blessing on those around him, even ironically those who hated him for his skin color. And what if, what if each of us did the same in our own kind of way? What if we prayed, oh God, give me the secret of this industry, right? The secret of this business, the secret of the, the place I work. I want to be a blessing to others. Or if you're a stay-at-home parent, what if you said, God, give me the secrets of my child's heart, right? To bless and prosper them. That's how you begin to pass this test, What's in your hand, huh? Or to quote the commercial, what's in your wallet, all right? What's in your wallet? How are you using what you have today? That's the first test, the test of your hands. But there's a second test here. Let's move on and look at this number two also. Uh, there's a test for our hearts here as well. And this test really is the central feature of a narrative. It's something that's in the background throughout Genesis, but it's prominent here. And so I'm going to spend some time dealing with it. Here we go. Joseph's boss, right? Joseph's boss's wife comes on to him. She gives him this two-word command to, to have sex with her. In contrast, he gives her, in Hebrew, this 35-word breathless response. I mean, you can kind of almost see the contrast here, right? Joseph having, is also having his me-too moment. He keeps talking, keeps, you know, verbalizing stuff, backing away, trying to get out of the room. And, you know, you got to feel for him because, in a way, Things have begun to look up for him, right? I mean, he's getting promoted. He's bringing home the bacon. He's rising the, the corporate ladder. And then this, this test comes up. The issue of sex comes up. How is Joseph's heart going to handle the issue of sex, which is many times the most challenging test the human heart ever faces? Well, I'm going to propose to you, and we're going to see that Joseph faces and passes this test by primarily remembering two things. So let's look at them. Here's what he does. Joseph passes this test first by remembering whose she is, whose she is. Uh, When he tells her, no, I won't go to bed with you repeatedly, by the way. He won't even, he says, at first he wants him to sleep with her. Then she says, well, just come lie beside me. Right. Yeah, like we all know how that's going to go, right? <laughs> Won't even go there. He says to her, no, you are his wife. He remembers the point is she's married to another man. And because of this, he calls what she's asking for from him. Look at this. He calls it a great evil and sin. He calls sex with her a great evil and sin. Now, some of you are saying, oh, God, now you're losing me, Morgan. Here's where we go. Here's the morality police in the form of the, you know, the Victorian puritanical sex ethic. It's raising its ugly head in church. I like this place. Why are you talking about this? And that's you. Hang on. 
Because what I'm hoping you'll see today, what I want you to see, is that the Bible's view of sex is not low. Oh, it's not demeaning, degrading. It's actually high. It's beautiful. It's sacred. It's lofty. It's glorious. And here's what I mean. Uh, The Bible acknowledges throughout that sexual sin is, yes, on one hand, it's like every other sin. No better, no worse, because it hurts other people and separates you from God. But the Bible also acknowledges that sexual sin has a, has a kind of uniqueness to it, a kind of power in it. It's just different than any other thing people do. Because when you get to the book, of exam, for example, of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to a highly sexualized culture in the city of Corinth. He says, look, every other sin that a person commits is outside themselves, outside their body. But he says, he who sins sexually sins against, he says, their own body. He's just saying what we already know, that that sexual sin just does something to you. And I think we know this deep down as a culture, even while we deny it. Uh, look at this. Consider this. A few years ago, the editor of Look Magazine, there's a, this, this guy, he wrote a book called The End of Sex. And he was, for his whole life, a skeptic and atheist, worked his whole life to unravel the Bible's teaching on this, and was a massive proponent, lived for decades as a, as a person with uninhibited freedom in his own sexual life. And he said this. This was his conclusion. He says, I've finally come to see every game has rules, And sex has rules. He said, unless you play by the rules, here's his conclusion, sex creates a depth of loneliness that nothing else can. What's he say? He's saying the same thing Joseph's saying. The same thing 1 Corinthians says. And what we know down deep, that there's just something unique about it. It's different than anything else. All right, this is what this is saying. But let me tell you, for example, by contrast, what this is not saying. What I'm not saying. This passage is not saying. That sexual desire by itself is wrong. And by the way, you should know this. The Bible never says this at any point. People just twist the message. As a matter of fact, at points in the Old and New Testament, the Bible commands husbands and wives to be enraptured with. And here's the word, to pleasure one another. You say, that's kind of awkward. It's about to get even more awkward. Let's keep going. For example, just so I'm going to prove my point here, in the Song of Songs, God's greatest number one hit of all time, chart topper, the male anatomy is sung about, by the way, though the translators can barely get there, and referred to as, sorry, a tusk with jewels next to it. And it basically gives husbands and wives tips, this is true, commentators say this, on how to have sex in public places. So go translate that. All right. Listen, don't be more prudish than the Bible. All right? The Bible's got a lofty, glorious view of human sexuality. Desire is not the problem here. So what is? Well, the issue isn't that Potiphar's wife is bad for wanting it. And Joseph is good for not wanting. And now the issue is that Potiphar's wife is lusting after a man she is not married to. And that's why Joseph says what he says. He, it's not just great evil and sin because she, she's married to someone else. It's, it's that Joseph is not married to her. They're not married to one another. So Joseph passes this test because he remembers whose she is. That is, she's not his wife. But second, he passes the test. I love this. Because he remembers whose he is. Whose he is. Because he doesn't just say, this is a great evil and sin. But he says, it's against God. Against God. Joseph remembers, he doesn't just belong to Potiphar. 
He belongs to God. He belongs to God. That God's his maker, right? God's his designer. And therefore, God also has a design and a purpose for sex. Now, maybe saying, come on, man, men design purpose. Sex is just like another appetite. And so like, you know, if I suppress my appetites, that's bad for me. You know, like with hunger, right? If I'm hungry, I eat. When I feel sexy, I just have sex, right? I mean, it's just another appetite, but is, is that true? Think about it. C.S. Lewis put it like this, and I'll paraphrase. He said, listen, if you ever went to a country, you found a country where young men it was, were in college, and they, they went around, and they had posters up in their dorm rooms of hot dogs and hamburgers. And then these young men went from room to room to see who had the best posters of the hot dogs and the hamburgers. Kind of like, man, look at the pickles on that thing, you know. <laughs> look how that, that ketchup just spread all over. Or he said, if in that country you found people who were paid money, this is C.S. Lewis, all right, paid money to slowly uncover cakes and pies. <laughs> he said, you would assume these were people who were starving. But if you found out that not only were they not starving, but they were up to their ears in food, they ate as much as they wanted, and they still were obsessed about it at every turn. And then if they got angry when you suggested that something might be kind of weird here, you know, dude, uh, that he said you could rightly assume something was wrong with how they viewed food. You'd assume something was wrong because no one treats food that way, and yet that's exactly how we treat sex. Why? We obsess over it. Here's why. Because we know sex isn't like food. We treat it differently because it's designed differently. You know, you won't go to jail for forcing a child to eat food, will you? Yeah. See, sex isn't just another appetite. It's different. No, it's not dirty on one end, but it's not just dessert on the other. What's it designed by God for? Let me try to put it in a nutshell, sort of summarize, collate the Bible teaching on this. Sex is designed, here it is, as a means of achieving whole life unity between two people. Whole life unity between two people. And this is always presented to us in the Bible in the context of one man, one woman for life, forever. So, if you're, this is where it's about to get real dicey. If you're unmarried and you're having sex, the Bible says in a way, in a way, you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. It's your body we're saying, right? We're one, I'm yours. When on the other hand, you're saying, I'm not going to do that with the rest of me, rest of my life. The physical union should be a sign of everything else being in union in a person's life. The Bible says you shouldn't act something out physically that's not true of you legally, uh, financially, spiritually, emotionally. And therefore, the implication, the hardcore implication is this. If you're not married and you're having sex, you're essentially insulting the other person, right? Because you're saying to them, or they're saying to you, I want your body, but I don't want you. All your problems, all your baggage, all your past, all your present, all your future, right? You say, well, in our case, listen, it's mutual. We've mutually agreed to do this. Listen, just because two people might agree to be selfish together doesn't make it right, right? (laughs) What if you and I, sorry, agree to be racist together? That didn't make that right. It doesn't, we agree to knock off a 7-Eleven. Doesn't make that right. No. <laughs> Mutual consent, it's crucial, but it never makes something, at least the Bible is called wrong or right. Now you're saying, oh, Morgan, you're making me feel guilty. No, no, that's not it at all. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Guilt never changes anybody long term. It doesn't. 
But what I am trying to do is to maybe just thumb wrestle you, if I could persuade you to think about sex in a different way, seeing it maybe as something higher than you've ever seen it before. Our culture views it as cheap, easy come, easy go. But the Bible's view isn't low like that. It's high. It's lofty. It's so amazing, the Bible says. It's so important and powerful. It can only begin to be handled by people who have committed in every other area. So, listen, final thought about this before we thankfully move on. It's a great thought I got from Tim Keller's book about marriage. You should read the book. But he says, he says, he says something. He says he hears all the time from people. I hear it too. Maybe you do too. Uh, about churches and different religions. He says people in our culture will say, you, you shouldn't focus on the differences between uh, different religions and faith systems. We should focus on and celebrate the things, if they're there, that all religions have in common. Right? He says, all right, fine. Look at all the major world religions. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Confucianism, they all say sex should be reserved for marriage. So he said, you got something that all the major world religions agree on finally, and you want to go, huh? Oh, well. Now listen, if all the major world religions agree on one thing, you would think that the citizens of the world would want to at least consider that. And that's what we have here. Our culture says sex is no big deal. Listen, you know better. Deep down, you know sex is different. And Joseph does too. Number one, he passes the test of his hands. Second, he passes the test of his heart because he remembers whose she is and whose he is. But there's a final test here in the passage that if Joseph never passes it, and if we don't face and pass, we'll never become who God has made us to be all along. Third, and finally, there's the test of our hope. Back to the story. Joseph here, he denies her advances. And so what does Potiphar's wife do next? Well, she's so insulted by this, right? She's so used to having her way, right? That she turns on him. She gathers all the staff in and she now goes to the other slaves in the house and she says, this is fascinating. She says to them, look, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. And by he, he means, she means her husband. See, she's playing the power dynamic here. The slaves, the servants against their boss and employer. And she never, you'll notice, calls Joseph by his name. She just tries to race bait him by calling him the Hebrew. Hebrew. But did you notice, this is my favorite part of the whole chapter. None of them ever respond to her. None of them take her side. Right? It's like they all stare at her, nod, and do nothing. Right? Why? Well, because they know. They know. They know who she is, what she's like. Perhaps, perhaps she's tried this with one of them. It did say, after all, she called in the male servants into the room. Yeah. But then she goes to her husband. And when he gets home and she makes the same accusation, and it culminates in verse 19, it says, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what, what your slave did to me. His anger burned. But again, it's fascinating because it never says that his anger burned against Joseph. It just says his anger burned. And so most commentators agree. He isn't actually angry with Joseph. He's angry because he knows he's about to lose Joseph, his best employee, as it were. He knows he's got to do something to save face in front of his servants with his wife. He knows his wife is playing him. And so his anger burns against her and he's too much of a coward. 
to do the right thing. He's got every right, though, if it's true to kill Joseph or to throw him into some terrible prison. But he puts him where? Where does Potiphar put Joseph? It says, in the king's prison. In other words, he goes soft on him because he knows it's not really true. But good prison, bad prison, here's the point. Joseph goes to prison for doing, here it is, the right thing. The right thing. He's treated unjustly by people he has treated justly. He goes to prison because he honors God. Joseph's reward for passing the last test is getting a harder test. Congratulations, Joseph and people of God. Oh, but if, if he never goes to prison, he never meets the servants there who are on Pharaoh's bad side. He never interprets their dreams while he's in prison. And, but when he does interpret their dreams, right, he's left in prison. He languishes for years in a jail cell until Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream. And Joseph now, as his brothers called him, the dream master. The pejorative they used is now fulfilled in a positive way. He's called out of prison and he's put in a position to do what he's been doing for years all along. Serving, blessing, prospering those around him. But this is Joseph's test. Will he obey God in prison, though his life is worse for doing so? This is why this is called the hope test. This, this kind of test, being forgotten, jailed for doing the right thing, just reveals where your hope has really been all along. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times, and you know this too, maybe with your friends, how many times people are angry with God, then they walk away from their faith. Because a relative died, maybe a spouse or child got sick or someone betrayed them. These are hard things. Something bad happens in the world. Listen, I understand, but when that kind of thing happens, our hearts are tested. It just answers the question, are we in a relationship with God, right, where he exists to serve us and follow us? Or the other way around. Listen, if he's just here to, if he exists to serve me, I don't want any part of that kind of God. I don't want to follow a God who follows me around like my dog. Asking for a milk bone or for a treat, please. Right, no. I don't want a small, wimpy God. No, I want a God who's able, oh, to work all things somehow for my good, to turn a prison into the best thing that's ever happened to me, who can call me up out of nowhere and put me in a position now to influence the world. I want to pass Church, that kind of test. Test of my hope. I don't know about you, but I want to have, oh, I want to have a hope in something so strong. It makes, it makes years in prison even seem like days. I want a hope so powerful that it can make being betrayed feel like just a speed bump on my way to where God's got me to go. I want a hope so strong it gives me the power to say no to something today that could steal my yes for tomorrow. And did you know, did you know there's a hint where we can find that kind of hope in the passage here. And the hint to that hope is a person. And and she just makes like a cameo here, like a guest appearance in passing. But her name is Rachel. And Rachel is the mother uh, Joseph looked like, but he barely knew because it was said of her. She was so beautiful. Her father fell in love with her when he just met her. And he worked for seven years to get her. He didn't touch her, didn't cohabitate, but he loved her so much. He waited for her because she was so beautiful. The love was so great. The years seemed like days to him. And I wonder if, I wonder if Joseph didn't hear the story from his father of his mother's legendary beauty. And I wonder if Jacob didn't tell his son, oh boy, I I loved your mother so much. I waited seven years for her. 
And I wonder if his words didn't pass into Joseph's heart and came back to him and flooded his mind when he was in the dark in his prison cell. Because how does Joseph pass all these tests here? I think he passes him like his father Jacob did. <sighs> Jacob here, and Joseph, excuse me, Joseph orders his love. That's the idea. He orders his love. Joseph shows us what that looks like through what he says when, when Potiphar's wife comes on to him. Because when he says, oh, I can't do that thing against God, he's not just saying, I know God is my designer. He's showing he knows God as the great love of his heart. Because what Joseph does here is at the point of temptation. Here he is. He's filling his mind, the point is, with something he loves more. He's not looking inward to suppress his desire for sex or power, saying, down boy, down boy, down boy. No, he's filling his mind by looking outward and increasing his love for God. And this is the key. The Bible gives us front to back about what drives human behavior, about what drives your behavior. It's not about what you love. It's about what you love more. It's about what you love most. That's what enables you and I to pass every test. Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Preached a great sermon on this chapter. He said this about facing tests and trials. He said, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Do you know God's doing that for you right now? Doing that for you today? What, did, what is Spurgeon saying? What did he have that enabled him to pass the test? He's saying he had a Rachel. He's saying he had a Rachel, right? Just like Jacob, like Joseph. And hear me, to pass every test in life, you need a Rachel to someone whose great beauty and whose love fills your heart, mind, imagination, so much you can give power away. You can hold on to your purity and you can, when you're in the prison, not even despair. You say, how can I get that home? It's like this. Oh, one day, one day there would be another Joseph, even more beautiful than the first. He was the one through whom all beautiful things were made. He was the one who held all power in his hands. His father withheld nothing from him. And yet Jesus Christ gave his beauty away. He gave his power away. And he was betrayed. And like this Joseph, when he was accused, when he was betrayed, he remained silent in the face of his accusers. First Peter says, when they hurled their insults against Jesus, he didn't even retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was put to death for crimes he didn't commit. He didn't commit, but we did. And he lost it all, that his beauty could come to us. And that's the gospel, friends, that through the death, the betrayal, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that great love and beauty becomes yours. So people think, if I had power, I would be a somebody. Oh, but look at Jesus, the great somebody who became a nobody. And whatever he appeared to lose in life, he gained through the resurrection. If you know that, listen, you will too. People think, if I could just be married, if I could just have sex, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. I know plenty of people who are married who are miserable. Look at, look at Potiphar's wife here. She's got it all. Still miserable, still manipulating, scheming, right? You, you need a Rachel, someone whose beauty fills your heart, mind, imagination.
can you say today to Jesus, oh, Jesus, in a way, you're my Rachel. Your beauty is so great. Your love is so great. It fills my heart. It makes the years serving you seem like days. It makes all the struggles I go through, all my trials, all my pains seem like just moments in life. Can you say, oh, I know you're turning me into someone unstoppable. I give you my hands, Jesus. I give you my heart. I give you my hope. Church, if you'll do that, you'll pass every test in life. Ask ye what great thing I know, the hymn says, that delights and stirs me so. What the high reward I win. Who's the name I glory in? Jesus Christ, the crucified. This is that great thing I know. That delights and stirs me so. Faith in him who died to save. Him who triumphed or the grave. Jesus Christ, the crucified. Let's go to the Father now in prayer, asking for these things to become ours.